If you're uh, new here this morning, then you're very welcome. My name's James. I'm one of the leaders here at New Life, and we're very glad to have you with us. Um, just a bit of a personal update for you as a church. Uh, some of you may, will know that we moved yesterday, and we're now uh, uh, residents of Beckles. Woo woo! <laughs> Yeah, um, our house sales, uh, our house has been sold and it will complete on Friday and uh, we moved yesterday into a rented house on Grove Road, so we're really glad to be here. For, uh, five and a half months of travelling, we're really grateful <laughs> that we won't be doing that anymore and uh, uh, that we're here with you, close to church family uh, and among you, so that's great. Do you turn to Ephesians 2, that's where I'm going to start off and we'll leap on to other parts of scripture as well, um, just uh, if you haven't um, been joining us the last couple of weeks, we started a new series which is called um, uh, Christ Church, Christ's Values. And we're looking at nine key values of church life that we see in Jesus' life, uh, in the life he lived, in his character. We're looking at how it's shot through New Testament church life. And we're thinking about how it applies to us today at New Life. And Andrew began our series last week with looking at word-based um, and at one point he uh, brought out that, that, that wonderful song that many of us will know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's so wonderful the Bible tells us that we're loved by Jesus. Um, but the Bible says that's not quite enough, that we're to know and experience and encounter the love of God for ourselves. It's not just head knowledge, we see it written in scripture, but it's something we experience in our person. And that's what we're looking at uh, today, to know the grace of God and his deep affection uh, for us. So today's value is the, the grace of God, God, which has been coming through in the prophetic words you've been hearing this morning. Um, and we're thinking about being a grace-filled church family. Um, if we can move it on, Tom. This is the value we're looking at today, that the message of grace and the gospel is central to the Christian life and local church. Grace ought to be expressed in relation to salvation, church life, relationships, and leadership style. We see our salvation as a work of God from start to finish. So that's what we're having a look at today. Um, but first, to see how amazing grace really is, we need to delve into our kind of murky past, as it were, and what life was like in our forefather Adam, and remind ourselves of what it was like before we became Christians, of what life was like outside of Christ. And we read in Ephesians 2, if you've got your eyes there, what it was like to not know Jesus and to be outside of Christ and still in Adam, as it were, as our kind of forefather. And it says that we, verse 1, we were dead in our sins. Uh, we might have been walking around in our earthly bodies, but really, spiritually, we were, we were dead inside. That verse 2, we were following the value systems of the world and the devil. They were carried away by the passions of the flesh, it talks about. That, um, there were other things other than Jesus kind of governing our lives and governing the decisions that we make. Verse 3, it goes on to say that we were by nature children of wrath, that we're deserving of God's punishment and judgment on us. In Adam, we were sinners by nature and choice. Everything about God and his holiness, every aspect of his holiness was set against us. And everything about us was set against God. We were both hopeless and helpless. We were, the, we were just in despair, really. We were, we were the walking dead. We had no way out ourselves. There was no way we could have got ourselves out of the situation. Nothing redeeming about our character. Nothing redeeming about 
our appearance, nothing that we could have done, no good work, no religious behaviour, no background would have saved us from that situation. Uh, Verse 4 tells us, though, that the answer is not found in ourselves, but it's found in God. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. That God has, it's not initiated by anything in us, but simply that God has loved us in Christ and saved us. And our, um, do you want to move it on, Tom? That'd be great. Um, Our sin is something that offends God. He's holy and perfect, altogether good. But because of his great love for us, he's stepped into our shoes in the person of Christ and become a man. And he bears, becomes the object of God's wrath on our behalf. Takes the punishment for our sin. That God graciously initiates faith within us, regenerates us. Uh, We're born again. He gives us a soft heart. Ezekiel talks about a heart of stone and becoming a heart of flesh. Our hearts are softened towards God. And we have a desire now to live for him, to please him. Uh, to delight him. We're born of the Spirit. We become a, a new creation. And from that point on, we're no longer in Adam, but we're in Christ. And God's declaration over our lives is righteous. Is righteous. Just as Jesus' righteousness becomes our own. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And then we're reconciled to God. We're at peace with God. That we're able to come into his presence as we've been singing about this morning freely because of Jesus' sacrifice once for all on the cross. And we're able to have heart-to-heart fellowship with God. If you just have a flick to Romans 6, we'll kind of carry on having a look at grace uh, from there. Don't worry if you've got a Bible. I'm going to mention the passages I'm talking about. But sometimes, Romans helps us deal with this struggle that can often go on within us, that struggles to grasp really what's happened to us, um, that can kind of be confused about who we are. Am I still a sinner? Am I still under the influence of the passions of the flesh, as it were, the things that my body wants me to do? Um, am I still under the influence of sin? Am I still a sinner? Um, we can be disheartened by our own sin. But the Bible's clear in Romans 6, verse 6, if you flick your eyes there, if you have it. Our old self was crucified with Christ. No longer we are enslaved to sin. But verse 7, we have died and been set free from sin. Verse 14, sin no longer has dominion. No reign over us. We're not under law, but under grace. Verse 18, we've been set free from sin. The Bible repeatedly affirms that we have, through faith in Christ, been united with him in his death and resurrection. His uh, death and resurrection has become our own. His victorious achievements are ours. We're in his kingdom, living under his reign of grace. We're dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Sin is no longer my master. Jesus is. I'm not a slave to sin anymore, but I'm a slave to righteousness. And this is the glorious truth that we rest in and is spoken over us. And then we get to this wonderful declaration in Romans 8.1. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation over you. But we still have this issue that temptation is incessantly lobbying. Isn't it? It's constantly knocking on the door. Constantly campaigning for our loyalty. 
And sometimes we can think that the solution to that is what we do, the kind of things we can do in life, the kind of practices we might have or the disciplines we might stick to. But really, it's about appreciating what God has already done in us and recognising the truth and reality of our new position in Christ. That our hearts are new and alive, our outer bodies decaying away, and our living souls are temporarily housed there. But we can tell sin, really, to take a running jump. Because before it kept us enslaved, but now we're free from it. No longer bound and having to sin, but free from sin and life to Christ. Our old self has died, along with our desire to give in to temptation. Now we enjoy life in the Spirit. We enjoy life in the Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. God gives us a new life in Jesus by pouring his supernatural love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit now lives inside of us, dwells in us, um, and encourages us and draws us into a new way of living, changes our character and cultivates fruit within our hearts that is displayed in our lives and the way that we behave. And the Spirit is the one that empowers us to walk in freedom that's won for us on the cross and to stop us from going back to our old ways and to live this new life that Christ has won for us. And that passage that Stuart read out in Romans 8, 15, 16, that we've um, received the spirit of adoption and that now we can cry out in prayer, Abba, Father. Uh, and that the Holy Spirit inside of us witnesses with our spirit that we're children of God and continually affirms to us, you're not a sinner, you're a child of God. Jesus' righteousness is your own. And because of this, we're adopted into God's family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of the beloved for all eternity. And not only that, we're enjoined to God's mission, his purpose through the church to make Christ's glory known, sharing in the delight of God that we've experienced for ourselves with others so that the nations of the world would be drawn into the enjoyment of God that we've been enjoying this morning. This is the grace of God that we enjoy. The crazy thing is about grace is that you could know all that and still do whatever you like. You could, and none of that would change. You could do whatever you wanted. But it's not the logical conclusion of the grace that you've received. And Paul writes about this in, in Romans. The logical conclusion of receiving this grace is this, Romans 12, verse 1, he gets to it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The right response to grace is not, well, great, now I can do what I like, because it's totally contrary to what we've become. The right response is worship. And uh, we're going to have a look at that in a minute. The right response to grace is worship. So this is New Testament apostolic teaching. This is what the church in Acts 2.42 devoted themselves to, the apostles' teaching. The grace of God, it's a bedrock of New Testament church life. And it oozes throughout New Testament letters. Why does it? Because it's, Jesus, it's a value of Christ. It's in him. John 1 verse 14 describes Jesus as being... Full of grace. Full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace. He's the embodiment of grace. 
Uh, we could have looked at so many passages um, to see grace in the life of Jesus, but we're going to have a look at Luke 7. So if you want to turn there. So I know we're doing a lot of flicking in our Bibles, aren't we? I'm moving at quite a pace. I'll slow down now. <laughs> Luke 7, verses 36 to 50, and it will pop up on the screen here. It's an encounter with a sinful woman at a Pharisee's house. Just to set the context, Jesus has been invited by a Pharisee called Simon as a special guest, a VIP guest, at a banquet at his house. Jesus is reclining on his side at the table with his feet behind him, as was the custom. The riffraff of society are waiting beside the walls, listening into conversations and hoping for some leftovers at the end of the meal. The, this woman in the story is a, repu- uh, is a reputed sinner. Um, possibly a prostitute, but she's reputed for her immorality. And she looks to have previously had an encounter with Jesus, heard his teaching, heard his offer of forgiveness, um, and accepted it. She has with her an alabaster jar of perfume, usually for purifying priests or festive occasions or burying the dead. Um, It's worth about the annual wage of a laborer. And her response to God's grace in forgiving her is one of extravagant love. It's a humble, lavish outpouring of emotion in devoted worship, which is an expression of her gratitude to Jesus for the forgiveness of her sins. And Jesus, in the middle of it, tells a parable to explain the woman's behavior. So, should we read it together? Uh, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Uh, Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay... He cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. And turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then, excuse me, and then those who are at the table... With him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace 
This is an incredible encounter with the grace of God. There's so much that could be said about this passage. I really got swallowed up in it and wondered how I was going to fit it in in a short time. Um, but I'm just going to pick out three aspects of God's grace in this encounter. There's much more I could say, but I want to I keep to these three. The first is that we're welcome at his table. The, the, the woman wasn't welcome at Simon's banquet. He was, she wasn't welcome at the VIP table. She was part of the riffraff, those who were listening on, sweeping up the leftovers. And when this woman, this sinner, approaches Jesus at the table, Simon is shocked that Jesus is allowing this sort of woman to be with her, be with him at the table. According to the rules, according to the law, to tradition, to protocol, this sort of woman, this sinful woman, had no right to be there, no right to be in Rabbi Jesus' presence, no right to touch him, no right to defile him. But the good news is, for her and for us, is that she is welcome at Jesus' table. When Jesus throws a party, <coughs> the riffraff are welcome. <laughs> That's good news, isn't it? If you're part of the riffraff, you're welcome. Um, you're welcome to eat with him, spend time with him, to learn from him. He welcomed thieves, tax collectors, prostitutes, the, despi- the despised and the lowly in society. So the good news, if we count ourselves amongst the riffraff, if you're aware of your sinfulness, you're welcome at his table. You're welcome in his presence, as we've been singing about this morning. So God grace, God's grace means that we're welcome at Jesus' table, we're invited as his VIP guests, and the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I was talking about a couple of weeks ago, or last week, I forget when, we're welcome there. We're welcome there. When Jesus returns, the riffraff riffraff like you and me are welcome at his table to feast with him. His grace towards us means that we're invited, we're accepted, we're welcome. Song of Songs 2 verse 4 says that unlike Simon the Pharisee, Jesus welcomes sinners. The riffraff like you and me are welcome at his banqueting house and his banner over us is love. But perhaps... Like Simon, we might think we're entitled to a seat at the table. We might not understand why Jesus allows certain people at his table, why he accepts and welcomes them. They're no better than anybody else. They don't deserve a VIP ticket. Christians aren't better than any others. It's true. Christians aren't any better than anyone else. That's the point. They know that they're welcome at Jesus' table because his banner over us is love. And because of that, we boldly approach Jesus like this woman does. Unlike Simon's table, only a special few are welcome. All are welcome at Jesus' table. Christianity isn't exclusive, it's entirely inclusive. If you're a sinner, you're welcome. And unless there's someone out there who I haven't met yet, that includes all of us. We're all welcome. And this affects the witness of the early church. In Acts 2.47, it says they had favor with all the people, not just the respectable in society, not just the high in society, not just the middle class, um, everyone. They had favor amongst all people. And when Jesus is teaching later in this book in Luke 14, the parable of the great banquet, he says, go into the streets and the lanes, bring in the poor, the crippled, the, bl- the blind, the lame, those who are in need. 
And then when the place still isn't full, go into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. As we read through Acts, this is what the early church did. God's grace is told to all people, and Jesus saves all kinds of people. He saves murderers like Paul, racists like Peter. He saves occultists like Simon, human rights abusers like the Philippian jailer. He saves Athenian philosophers like Dionysius, politicians like the Ethiopian eunuch. So for us as a church, this means that we extend the grace of God to everyone and anyone. Nobody's beyond the reach of his grace. So here at New Life, we don't have any of this. This person's too far from God. They're too opposed to Christianity. They're too atheistic. They're too self-righteous or they're too clever. They're too disinterested. They're too oblivious. They're too self-sufficient to become a Christian. We don't have any of that. Nobody's too far from the grace of God. The grace of God reaches everyone. Because the grace of God is absolutely outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. Totally outrageous. Um, The reality is that if you've killed someone, if you had sex with somebody who didn't agree to it, if you had an abortion, if you... um, had inappropriate relationships with children, if you've cheated on your wife or husband, the reality is you're welcome at Jesus' table. That should shock us a little bit. They're welcome. We're welcome at Jesus' table. And this means the front door of our church is wide open. We welcome all as they are to receive God's grace just as we have. It means we persevere too and we don't lose heart where we hit disappointment. When we step out and share the gospel and people don't respond as we hoped, we push through knowing the grace of God goes a lot further than our disappointment. When was, this is a question for us to challenge us with, what, when was the last time we did what Jesus did and you had at your table somebody you wouldn't ordinarily have? When was the last time you invited somebody in They ate with you at your table. Somebody probably wouldn't expect you to be having dinner with. It's what Jesus did. So we don't withhold the sharing of the grace of God with anybody that we come across, but purposefully share it with all. Uh, The second thing um, to have a look at is that this woman overcame uh, many obstacles to approach Jesus. So it's helpful to understand her context a little bit. She lives in a, a shame and honor-based culture, um, as opposed to an innocent guilt culture, which we tend to live in. You know, when we think about something that we've done right or wrong, you have this inner conscience, don't you? There's something inside of you that tells you, I did something wrong and that's not okay. Which people in a shame honor culture might think is slightly pathetic, that you can't get over your own feelings about it and just do whatever you want. Um, in a shame and honor-based culture, the ma- it matters to other people how you, what you're doing and how you appear. It matters to you whether they'll approve of what you're doing and whether they'll say shame on you if you do this. And in our culture, we think, oh, how, how pathetic, you know. Don't worry about what other people think. Be yourself. 
Um, it's just different cultures, and we're, we're, neither is right or wrong. We'll just experience things in different ways. Uh, for this woman, the shame of others would have produced a fear inside of her of what others might say. Um, she would have been bound, enslaved to the approval of others. The possibility of other people shaming her would have limited what she was able to do. It would have produced in her an inauthenticity, a need to put on a mask and appear a certain way. Um, this was what she would have lived in. She would have been aware of other people's shaming of her and unable to do things in case they, they did shame her and pointed her out. She would have felt this as she walked into the VIP room. This would have been an obstacle in the way of her reaching Jesus the rabbi with others around looking on, aware of her reputation, aware of the kind of woman she was, shaming her for her behavior. We don't have so much of this shame culture in Britain. It's there a bit, but mostly we're a judgment culture, and she had that as well. She lived in a culture of judgment. If you get something wrong, if you sin, you're judged. You're wrong. You're labeled sinner. That's the line, the kind of heading over your life, sinner. It would make her afraid to step out in case she was judged and pointed out by others. It's a bit like, you know when you're queuing? If you've ever queue jumped, you'll know this feeling. Not that any of us would have dare ever do this. <laughs> but imagine a scenario where you're standing in a queue in the post office. It's long, not going down very quickly. And you walk out the queue just because you're late for something and walk straight to the next available counter past 10 or 12 people. Regardless of whether anybody says it, which Simon doesn't in the passage... You know the label on you from everybody else standing in the queue with you is Hugh Jumper. It's judgment. How dare you think you're any better than us jumping in front of us on the, you know? And that's, this, this woman would have had that sense as she broke through. And many of us nowadays, even as Christians, can live with a deep sense of shame for past sin, things we've done in the past, or things we're currently doing, which we know aren't right. Many of us live with judgment over our lives. The label across our forehead reads sinner. That we remain trapped in our sin. We're primarily aware of how we've got it wrong. How we're not meeting the standard. How we're not doing the things Christians should do. We're aware of all our failings, shortcomings, inadequacies. And what that does is it stops us from enjoying and experiencing the love of God that he has for us and experiencing his affection for us. And it brings about a conformity to the norm that stops us from stepping out and doing something that we might otherwise have done. And what this woman does is she breaks through rule, tradition, protocol. She jumps the queue as you like. She says, I don't need this life anymore because she's just concerned about getting to the one she loves. She breaks the flask of perfume of incredible value in a great act of faith in order to express her heartfelt gratitude to Jesus for forgiving her. Her worship is lavish. It's extravagant, and it's emotionally devoted and reverend. And because of our church tradition, we've kind of skewered some of those words. When you think of the word reverend, you think of solemn, 
serious. What she did was reverent. It was in the form of an emotional outpouring. And the word that's used uh, for her weeping is breko. It's a Greek word that's used for rain showers. She's not like a little bit teary like I am. She is weeping. <laughs> Absolutely weeping. It's cringy and embarrassing and awkward to the onlookers watching her do this. She's a woman. Jesus is a man. In letting down her hair, she does something totally outrageous that really was reserved for a wedding night when a woman would let down her hair in front of her newlywed husband. She's intimate with him. It's an intimate encounter. She bears all. She kisses his feet rather than the normal kiss of greeting him on the cheek. It's intense and it's deep reverence. She took time over these actions. It wasn't like the cue jump where you cue jump, do the thing you need to do and run out quickly before anybody has anything to say to you. She's taking time over this. She's pouring herself out. It changes the atmosphere of the meal. It's a shocking thing. Do you have those moments, those regular moments throughout life where you become aware of your sin and you take time to show gratitude to Jesus for what he's done and it just overflows? I personally had one of those moments last weekend. I'd been getting incredibly frustrated and angry, out of balance with the things that were stimulating the anger and the frustration. And uh, I'd been praying Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, see any grievous way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. And uh, God revealed I just pridefully made my own inner sense of success in life, of kind of almost proving God's calling on me, a kind of bigger thing than it needs to be, and just out of kilter. You know, become an idol, made something that wasn't the main thing the main thing. And I was getting disproportionately frustrated and angry because of it. The things would have been frustrating normally, but it was just my reaction was out of kilter with it. Because this thing that was threatened, the thing I loved, this inner sense of success, was the thing that I loved. And so when it, anything threatened it, I got angry and frustrated. When God just pointed and revealed that out, that's going on in your heart. That's relief. Just that he'd answered the prayer, but also getting that fresh realisation and awareness, Jesus has forgiven me of my sin. That runs a lot deeper than I'm ever really aware of. Do you have those regular moments throughout your life where you become aware of your sin, when your gratitude to Jesus just overflows? Because you've afresh realised what he's done. So many of us are, are really aware of our own sinfulness. We're aware of um, our sinfulness, our failings, our inadequacies, our sin and our shame. We accept labels of judgment. We call ourselves sinner. We feel limited and bound, enslaved. We fear to step out in faith. We are reserved in our expressions of love towards God. We're unable to express authentic emotional devotion to Jesus. 
perhaps concern for what others might make of it or just being half-hearted in worship because we're aware most of our sinfulness and aware less of God's forgiveness and grace towards us. So some of us are in Simon's place, though. Jesus says that in this parable that Simon still had a debt. She owed 500 denarii. He owed 50. It's smaller, but when they could not pay it back, when they were dead in their sins, the debt was cancelled. Simon's unaware of it, and so he loves little or, or not at all. He doesn't worship Jesus or extend to him the courtesies that Middle Eastern hospitality uh, meant he should have. He's aware of the greater sin of others, but not of his own, and so he makes little of Jesus, who's offering forgiveness. And whether you're a Christian living under condemnation, or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian not in need of forgiveness, the reality is we all need the same thing. We need a fresh revelation from God of our sin and shame that leads to gratitude towards God that he's taken it away from us through Jesus' death on the cross. So this is the appropriate response and posture in our prayer and in our worship life. When we think about how we pray here at New Life, when we think about how we worship it's the appropriate response to God's gracious forgiveness of us. So when the woman entered the house and broke the protocol, the shame and judgment of others was on her. This sort of woman, she's a sinner. But by her act of faith, Jesus accepts her worship, affirms her forgiveness, and the shame and judgment that was on her is no longer on her, but placed on Jesus. When she walks out of the room, the eyes are no longer on her, the eyes are on Jesus. Nobody's thinking shame on her anymore, they're thinking shame on him. And this is the divine exchange, this is the great exchange that has taken place. They're thinking, who does he think he is, allowing himself to be defiled by her sin? allowing her to touch him, to come near to him, to be in his presence. How dare he think he can forgive sins? Who does he think he is? This is the great exchange. Jesus is defiled by our sinful reputation. He takes our shame and the right judgment over our lives, which was sinner, is laid on him and God's wrath is poured out on him instead of us. Our sin and shame is exchanged for his righteousness and honour. What outrageous grace. This, is, this woman's response is what a humble, lavish, extravagant, emotionally devoted prayer and worship life looks like when you're aware of your own sin and shame and realise that it's no longer on you, but it's on Jesus I wonder when was the last time, whether in private prayer and worship or in corporate, did we last feel so free of shame and sin and judgment, so free of tradition and norm, that our prayer and worship was this lavish 
this extravagant, this emotionally devoted. When was the last time our prayer and worship was like this woman's? Because her sins were many and they were forgiven. And the third thing. Uh, This awareness of our forgiveness affects our relationships as well with one another. Jesus tells this parable to explain the woman's worship and a posture towards Jesus. And Jesus makes the the point that this parable, in his parable, that the woman is responding in a way that she has because her sins are many and she's been forgiven, that God has shown her mercy. When he tells that parable, the moneylender forgives the debt, and it's this word charizoma, or charizoma. It's a Greek word used elsewhere to refer to God's free offer of grace. The moneylender cancels the debt, forgives it, takes it on himself, and absorbs it. The outrageous forgiveness shown is by this moneylender is just extraordinary. It's not it's not normal, it's not usual, it's humanly speaking out of character. It's like um, your, do I need to move this? Um, it's like your mortgage lender calling you up and just saying, we've decided to just cancel your debt, have the house. <laughs> Anybody had that experience? No, because it's totally out of character. It's not a normal thing to do. Um, One writer says, it's the unmerited character of the act that is the basis for her gratitude. God has shown outrageous grace and forgiveness and cancelled the debt we couldn't pay. Regardless of whether you're Simon or this woman, you can't pay your debt back. We all need his forgiveness. And Simon could have never done what this woman did. His response to the worship of this woman is... If he was a prophet, he'd know what sort of woman this is. The religious spirit is like this. It criticizes and is quick to judge others. It's quick to judge others. I remember I was uh, a younger man. Maybe this is like 10 or 12 years ago. And I'm speaking at this 18 to 30s event called Mobilize East that we used to run at King's and people from around the region, 18 to 30s, would come. And I was the man of the hour, come to bring the word in power, and I'd even invited some friends along. My head of department from work had come along. My cousin and his wife had come along, not Christians, and I'm thinking, this is a fantastic opportunity, and I'm getting all geared up for the preach. I was slightly worried, though, and nervous about those people who are kind of crazy praisers. You know, they, they're the one in church that everybody's slightly aware of because they're thinking... Please don't be here when I bring my friends. <laughs> and there were plenty of those guys around, playing the imaginary drums, waving flags, shouting and screaming at inopportune moments. And I'm thinking, oh, I really hope they're not here and too much of that doesn't go on during worship and I, we can just get to the preach where I'll bring something that will really count. <laughs> and just felt God afterwards. Well, I went to the pub with my friend Pete afterwards. And his response was, I said, Pete, how did you find it? Um, I expected people to be a bit more excited. (laughs) (laughs) And I just felt God convict me and say, just convict me of my quick-to-judge attitude towards other people. 
And uh, God was just reminding me that the only difference between the crazy praises that I wish, wasn't, wish weren't there and me was that they were more aware of God's forgiveness than I was. I might, I might have been the one bringing the word that evening, but they were aware of God's forgiveness. And maybe if they'd been there, Pete would have realized that some people are pretty excited about the grace of God towards them and his forgiveness. We can all be like Simon, quick to judge the behaviors of others. But Simon owed a debt he couldn't pay, just as the woman did. Um, God's grace means that we should therefore think the best of one another. Remember that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all owe a debt we couldn't pay. We're all dead in sin. You can't be more dead than someone else. (laughs) We all couldn't pay the debt, however large it was. We couldn't pay it. Regardless of whether your debt is huge and your past sin is revolting, or your past sin is, I came to Jesus as a five-year-old and a couple of times I didn't do what my mum and dad had told me to do. It doesn't matter. Your debt is one you couldn't pay off. James 2 verse 13 says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Are our thoughts and conversations about one another grace-filled? Is the revelation of God's mercy towards us triumphing over judgment of others in the way that they behave, in the way that we talk with one another? One writer says that love emerging from forgiveness changes the direction of one's life. And Jane's prophetic word that she brought, and you realize forgiveness, love and gratitude in your heart is what brings about change in your life and means you'll choose this path rather than the one that God's warning you not to walk down. It's not like greater discipline. It's not greater if I just do this or I just do that. It's, oh, God's so forgiven me. Express love and gratitude to him, so I I live this way instead. It affects our relationships with others, with those who uh, wouldn't call themselves Christians. Colossians 4.6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, that we wouldn't, as new life, be witnesses who are judgmental of others' behavior and their choices in life, but who show grace towards them. And it affects our relationships with one another. Uh, Proverbs 15, 1 and 4 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. If our relationships with one another here as a church family are gracious, what we'll see is a culture of generosity towards one another. When we don't quite know the person's heart, we see something they did or we hear about it, we won't be quick to judge what they did and why they did it, but generous towards them and think the best of them until we've had a chance to talk it through with them. It will create in our church a culture of honour where we prefer others, where we think the best of them, where we make them feel part of the family before judging where they're at and the kind of life they're living. It means we'll generate as well a culture of risk and courage. Because like this woman, she stepped out in faith, broke all of the protocol and the tradition, 
ignored the shame and the judgment. She was bold and courageous, wasn't she, in her prayer and worship. And that we too will be courageous and bold in the steps of faith we take when we understand the grace of God and it fills our relationships with one another. And so things that perhaps weren't the norm and the tradition are okay to do. Uh, the band want to come back. Well, I've got one quote from us from J.I. Packer, which um, I just love. And then we'll spend some time just responding in lavish, extravagant praise and worship of God. Should we stand? Uh, J.I. Packer wrote this. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it. The fact that he knows me. I'm graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. There is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge, knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic. Based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. So that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself. Nor quench his determination to bless me. Yeah, Father, we thank you for your grace. There is nothing about us that can um, get in the way of your loving us. You've decided to love us just because you're a loving God and nothing because of us. We thank you for your great offer of forgiveness and that your grace ongoingly is determined to bless us and do us good. We thank you, Lord. Amen.